taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of apologetics while taking truth into the arena of ideas. You are listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by BellatorChristie.com. Now join your hosts, Brian Chilton and Curtis Evelo, as we enter into the arena of ideas. Coming to you from Pilot Mountain, North Carolina and Ronan, Montana, this is the Bellator Christie Podcast, bringing you the scripture for the day. This comes to us from John chapter 17, verse 21, where Jesus prays, May they all be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of Christian apologetics, while taking the truth into the arena of ideas. This is the Bellator Christie Podcast. My name is Curtis Evelo, and I'm joined by Brian Chilton as we answer your most pressing apologetic and theological questions of the day. Well, welcome, 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 everybody. We're glad to have everybody aboard, and uh, we're praying that this uh, this podcast reaches out and touches somebody that uh, may have questions about uh, denominations and and, uh, and things that uh, may be out there. Uh, let's go ahead and welcome on Brian. I know we got a we got one issue we want to talk about real quick, and let's welcome him on. Hello, Brian. Hey, Curtis. I actually have a couple things. Uh, there should be. Let me pull it up here. Uh, this just came to me uh, that I was wanting to share. There should you gotta be. You got to do the news. You got to do the news break thing, dude. <laughs> we need the. I keep rem- wanting to remember to bring my tablet with me and um, <laughs> play, play those the ticker. Yeah, the ticker tape sound that they used to have with the uh, the newscast. Well, anyhow, this is something that's actually going to benefit you, Curtis, more than it benefits me. May twenty sixth, twenty twenty one. This is on Wednesday. I think it's next Wednesday, so a week yeah. from today, early in the morning. My understanding is there will be a total. Lunar eclipse. This is going to be a blood moon, a super blood moon, which a blood moon is a, is a lunar eclipse, and um, it's going to happen again May twenty sixth, twenty twenty one. If you're on, if you're in the western part of the United States, you're going to be able to see the whole entire thing. You're going to have a great view of it. If you're in the eastern part of the United States. We'll get kind of a partial view. We'll kind of get a half a view of the of the solar eclipse, but still, we'll be able to see some of it. So, uh, if you're on the if you're on the left coast, if you're on the west coast, you guys are going to be the lucky ones. Uh, you'll get this full view, and uh, you guys out in Montana are going to get a good view of it too. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I hope so. It looks. I was just looking at the weather. I was like, wait a minute. I think that's that's when we're expecting rain, and, oh, and uh, man. looks See? like when looks like well, it'll it may change. <laughs> yeah, this this weather forecast lasts about five minutes. <laughs> well, I'm telling you, here in the state of North Carolina, we're home of bipolar weather because we went from last week it being down to 36 to this weekend being up in the 90s. This is crazy. I think this is why most everybody's sick around here. <laughs> If that's why I sound like I've got a fog horn voice tonight because uh, uh, my sinuses are crazy. <laughs> mm. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, so it looks like it's going to be. Uh, it may be cloudy on Wednesday. That's that's next Wednesday, but we'll see. We'll we'll see what happens. Um, 
we may be able to see it. Who knows? It'd be kind of cool if we could. And if you're on the West Coast, try to take some pictures and post them for us and uh, tag us at Bellator yeah. Christie. We'd love to see your pictures of this uh, super yeah. blood moon coming up. So not only will it be a, a lunar eclipse, it's going to be a super moon on top of that, which is a real, a real like rare. It's really close, right? Yeah, it's going to look that way. It's going to be even the, bigger. Yeah. What the heck it was that? Uh, the movie. Um, uh, Oh shucks, Bruce Almighty! Bruce Almighty, where <laughs> yeah. he pulls the moon in close. <laughs> Gonna lasso the moon and pull it close. <laughs> oh my goodness! Well, we had yeah. some positive news, but we also have to give you some some uh, not so positive news. Uh, DC Talk, you know, DC Talk is consists of uh, Michael Tate, uh, Toby Mac, and Kevin Max. Uh, Toby uh, Michael Tate is known to be the front man for the Newsboys. Uh, Toby mm-hmm. Mac, he had his own solo career. Kevin Max has kind of uh, has kind of drifted into different bands. Uh, Kevin Max has admitted here recently in a Twitter post that he identifies himself with an ex as an ex-evangelical, according to the Christian Post, and is working toward progressing and deconstructing. Uh, he even, on his Twitter account, even made mention of this uh, this post on the Christian Post as well. On Saturday, Max, a Grammy-winning vocalist, came out on Twitter writing, Hello, my name is Kevin Max, and I'm ex-evangelical. In response to his initial tweet, Max said that he still believes in the universal Christ, and uh, there's been a great speculation online about what he means by universal Christ, uh, whether this is still under the umbrella of Christianity. Is it kind of a heterodox position? I don't think it's necessarily uh, a her- heretical doctrine, but it may be a little heterodox. But even that, it just depends on what he means by universal Christ, and he's really not that clear uh, about what he means. Now, he did later on mm. say... Um, he said that um, he said Max said if Christians aren't progressing in their faith, they're, they're growing stagnant. And so he concludes that mm-hmm. by saying that I believe in the God of the universe, I believe that He can hear me, and that in itself is just pl- plain kind of crazy. And I, yeah, but if I believe that, then I truly believe that He cares about my progression and asking questions and wanting to know what is real and what isn't real. Uh, again, this may just simply be him coming out as more of a liberal, progressive Christian, um, which doesn't necessarily mean that he's heretical, uh, but uh, it, a lot, the biggest question is what does he mean by this universal Christ? And, mm-hmm. I, you know, I've had some conversations with some people online about this. He's not completely clear what he means, so it's kind of hard to dissect what he's even talking about and let's just be honest not to be cynical he is plugging his latest album with his new band uh was astronaut sad i think it's called or something like that so he's got a new band he's plugging a new song so could this be simply a ploy to sell albums could be yeah yeah you just never know (laughs) it's it's hard to tell yeah yeah well it's i mean DC Talk from back in the day, man. I had a lot of their albums. Jesus Freak. <laughs> Jesus yeah. is just all right with me, you know. <laughs> yeah, that was a good one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, um, we just need to pray for them and, and uh, keep leaning in and, and uh, keep doing what Bellator Christie's doing and try to try to give a solid base of, uh, of uh, 
theology and historic uh, the historicity of Christianity and and just give people the the grounds to be able to uh, look into those things and uh, have a solid have a solid foundation. Most certainly. So today. Since you got a lot of pages of notes, I think we probably better get rolling on it. <laughs> oh, you asked some good questions. <laughs> yeah. So today, folks, we're going to be talking about denominations. Now, here's what's crazy is I saw here in town, pulled around the corner the other day, um, right at the Dairy Queen, at the gas station in Dairy Queen. That's where right I ate lunch today. There. Well, <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't in Montana, though, but... <laughs> But sitting in the parking lot was a guy that said denominations are evil or uh, are sinful. Prove me wrong. He had a desk sitting there, and it said, prove me wrong. Now, I had to hurry home because I had some other things I had to do. Um, we actually were hauling cows that day. In fact, I sent you a picture of that, Brian. <laughs> yeah, they um, were saying hi. But... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, but I had to hurry home, so I couldn't. I couldn't pull in there, but I so badly wanted to pull in and ask the guy. Well, what do you mean by that? Yeah. <laughs> and then start just asking, just and start asking, and just see where this guy was coming from. And it's kind of ironic because we had we uh, we had already had these questions ready to rock and roll, and uh, we wanted to talk about denominations. Now, my heart in this is to show people that were not too far out away from each other in the majority of these for the most part that's right yeah yeah and so let's go ahead and get get kind of into it here so we're going to start at denominations and then uh I'll, i'll start out with the first question here with so many denominations how do we know what is right Okay, so this is kind of what I use whenever I teach uh, theology. In fact, I, I taught at a church one time uh, uh, a course on the basics of theology. And when I, when I teach this, I often think of four concentric circles. And some people may not know what I'm talking about when I say that. So if you think of a bullseye like on a dart game, you know, on a game right. of darts, it's just like that. You have the innermost circle, and then you have another circle outside of that one, and a third circle, and a fourth mm-hmm. circle. Think of, think of it like that. Think of it like a dartboard. The innermost circle, let's, let's say that, that circle is blue. Blue is, in, in Christianity, is a symbol of uh, the color of truth. The innermost circle represents the fundamental primary doctrines of the faith. And so, um, so the innermost circle is is when we talk about the primary essentials of the faith. This is what determines whether a person is within the worldview of Christianity or they're not. This would come down to what you would find in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father, Almighty Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who is conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, was condemned by Pontius Pilate, crucified, died, and buried. Uh, uh, was had rose again on the third day, ascended to the right hand of God the Father, from whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, meaning the universal church, not talking about denomination, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, and of life everlasting. That's the Apostles' Creed. That is the crux of 
the Christian faith. Habermas yeah. makes the suggestion to say that from the earliest times of the church, uh, you could even say it comes down to even three doctrines, the death, deity of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus. Those are the fundamental go. fundamentals of the salvation, fundamentals of Christianity. So mm-hmm. this is what comprises the innermost circle. In the second circle, we'll say this is green, the evergreen. Think of that. Here is where we find the interpretations of the essentials of the faith. So in this area, when we talk about systematic theology, we're talking about that green circle, the second circle, the secondary doctrines, how all of it fits together. You know, looking at the essentials, putting it all together. When we talk about the issues this past week, we talked about Molinism. We, we mm-hmm. see that camps of individuals across denominations are found in this in, in these mm-hmm. this segment. Uh, large swaths of individuals. So you have some who are Reformed, some who are Armenian, some who are Molinist, some who are Thomist, some who are Wesleyan. All of this is how these things come mm-hmm. together and are unified. The third circle, yeah. outside of the second circle, think of this as the color yellow for a caution because we're, we're really drifting here, and there's some disagreements that, that come by the third one, really. Um, and in this third concentric circle, this is the tertiary doctrines of the faith, the third-level doctrines of the faith. And here's where we find the applications of the interpretations of the essentials of the faith. So, for instance, like maybe maybe the, the 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 topic of discussion is baptism, and we understand that a person's mm-hmm. saved. Uh, that's the the primary doctrine. We understand the person needs to be baptized. That's the secondary doctrine. Well, how right. is the person baptized? That's the third level doctrine. Is it by immersion, or is it by sprinkling, or do right. we do we baptize children? Pedo baptism. Um, that's the third level doctrines. And then I argue, some people don't, all, don't do this, but I argue that there's a fourth level doctrine, uh, quaternary beliefs, and this is outside the, even the yellow circle. This is a red circle, and I label it red because this is where the fights brew. This, these are the opinions of the applications of the interpretations of the essentials. And so here we find things, debates like we're over worship style, over preaching right. style, Bible translations, um, music, music. What type of shrubbery? What color carpet? You know, this is <laughs> pews or chairs. Pews or chairs. <laughs> you know, flashing Kneeling lights or, or white or, or you know, yeah. I mean, this. But yeah. I would dare say that the vast majority of debates happening in churches come from that fourth circle than they do the first three. I, I don't know this. I'm just guessing, but I'm just 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 observing. I don't. This there's no scientific basis so like it, from what I'm getting ready know. to say. But I think that just from observing, I would dare say at least eighty percent, if not over ninety, at least eighty percent of church conflicts come from that fourth circle. That's interesting. Yeah, because I was just going to say, and it just popped into my head because I actually have one that that I had. Pastor Lynn years ago draw out for me because I was like, this is interesting because we talked about it. But in that outer circle, he has uh, dress, you know, what you what you're wearing, uh, modesty, music, smoking, drinking. You yeah. Know? 
um, all of those things, you know, um, it, those those we can those we can discuss and we can we can agree to disagree. So we can agree to disagree on the second, third, and fourth level doctrines. Now, right. I will say that it may be hard to worship with someone with whom you don't agree on the second level mm. doctrines because the second level doctrines go. are pretty important. The third level doctrines, it depends on whether you can live with it or not. So, for instance, mm. you know, or then the fourth level doctrines, I mean, again, that, that's how much can you live with. But the primary doctrines have to be set. There has to be agreement in the primary doctrines for us to be able to call ourselves Christian. And so, mm. to answer your question, I, I, this is a long answer to a very good question, but with so many denominations, how do we know what's right? We've got to go back to the essential doctrines of the Christian faith, and that's what that's is right. most important. The most that's important right. thing is to get in the Word, follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Jesus told us that the Holy Spirit would teach you all things and remind you everything that I've told you. Uh, we need human teachers, but we mm -hmm. need to have that authenticity of the Holy Spirit confirming the message that's being taught and being given. And so, um, but now on the second level doctrines, um, you know, this these are where, you know, we have large swaths of differences between individuals. It may be difficult to worship with someone. I mean, it's not impossible, uh, but it may be a little more difficult to worship with someone who doesn't hold the same uh, second level doctrines. Um, not impossible, but uh, just depends on how convicted you are on certain issues. Third level doctrines, um, you know, this is where we get into conversations about who can serve in ministry, um, the manner of baptism, and things of this nature. To, that area depends on how strongly you hold certain convictions. So um, right. it may be that you can still attend a church where you don't even agree with the third and fourth level doctrines but you do agree with the first and second level doctrines. Right. You might feel safer in a church there where than in a church that where you hold a agreement with the third and fourth level doctrines, but you don't necessarily in the second. Mm -hmm. uh, so, mm -hmm. you yeah. know, these are things to consider as you're looking for a church. Uh, how much agreement do you need to have to be able to worship there? And if a person's waiting for a place to have a hundred percent agreement. Well, I hate to break it to you, but... Good luck. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, and see what's interesting here. So, with with uh, with us having so many different denominations, you know, because there's a, a bunch of people that always say, you know, that... Oh, look at you Christians, you know, you guys don't can't even agree on, on one, on what color the drape should be. And, and it's like, well, <laughs> I guess, but most of it is in the core of, of, of the doctrines. And that's, that's holding to biblical truth. The rest of it could be what you grew up in, uh, could be, um, just maybe during that season, maybe, that you know that type of uh, of church really speaks to you as far as how uh, you know how liturgical it is. Maybe the maybe just the rhythms of a of a of a liturgical church may may 
may spark or or stir up something in you um and then you move on to somewhere else i mean god's gonna feed you where god's gonna feed you if you're willing to be there absolutely yeah so i mean it come down to family preference you know i mean most of your kids you know and, and a lot of this does come down to personal preference quite frankly um, mm-hmm. You know, some people, it's interesting, some people, I, I met a guy today who went to a church because he wanted a strong youth program for his kids, but I also pastored a church just on the outskirts of a major city where we had younger couples who came to the church. We didn't, we didn't have as much to offer in the youth programs as other churches did, but they came there because they wanted a more traditional family church in which mm-hmm. they could worship. So... A lot of it comes down to personal preference. It comes down to mm-hmm. comfort levels. Um, mm-hmm. But here, but here's the thing: we've got to understand. Christians today are, and this isn't speaking of every Christian, but we've got to be honest here. We we often lack maturity <laughs> in many areas, yeah. by and yeah. large, because because we do expect people to agree with us 100%. And that's just not going to happen. God didn't create right. us all to be the same type of person. He gave us all different gifts and abilities and talents, spiritual gifts. We have different preferences. We ha- you know, so, so the thing is, is you, you're probably not going to find a church to which you have 100% agreement. But find the one that, that most certainly coheres and is cohesive in the fundamental doctrines of the church, of the Christian faith. And you probably want to find something where you find a good harmony in the secondary level. But when mm-hmm. it comes to the third and fourth level, I mean, it just depends on... I think that's an issue of maturity there as to how much mm-hmm. you're willing to um, allow <laughs> in that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, our church... Our church is just a, it's an amazing church in the fact that, um, just so welcoming, you know. Oh, yeah. We just love on everybody. And that's a very important important piece of the puzzle. Yeah, and there's a lot of people that don't like the fact that sometimes the the church service goes on for two hours or two. Holy smokes. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you know, we're, we're there worshiping and, you know, we... Sometimes we're not done for, you know, an hour and a half, two hours, and then we go and sit down in the fellowship hall and and uh, have have lunch and, you know, and soup and visit with more people, and sometimes, shoot, we don't get out of there until, you know, three hours later, four hours later. And So you when you have church, people, you have church. <laughs> yeah, some, some people don't like that, and, and you know, some people want a, a 30-minute sermon and three songs, and they want to get out. Now, there's a level to me, personally, that that says something to the maturity, just like what you were saying. What really are they getting out of church then if all they're wanting is just these set things that that's all they got, all they want? Well, you know? and, and, and some people, let's, you know, to be honest, um, mm-hmm. there, there are some people, you know, as, as I was often taught in Bible college, you know, the mind can't absorb what the backside can't endure. And, you know, there are certain people who have, you know, certain personal mm-hmm. problems where, you know, maybe they can't sit for 
long periods of time uh, due mm-hmm. to health reasons and things of that nature. In fact, there was a story that Chuck Swindoll told one time, and I guess we need to be moving after this because we're almost half hour into this and haven't got down to the first question. But uh, Chuck Swindoll told a story. That's uh, all on you, buddy. <laughs> I appreciate that. Chuck Swindoll told a story where he was preaching a revival, and um, there was a lady who came up. I think it's either Chuck Swindoll or David Jeremiah. I'm pretty sure it's Chuck Swindoll. Yeah, there's a couple came up, and the, and the ladies and the, the the man, the husband said, said, Doctor Swindoll, I'm a huge fan. I'm one of the biggest, your biggest supporters. I love hearing you preach. Well, the first night he he was preaching the revival, and the man fell asleep. The second night, the, the the same thing happened. This time, the man the man was draped behind the behind the you know leaning over the pew you know backwards, and his mouth was open. And by the fourth night, the man was snoring loudly. <laughs> and so every night they came by and they thanked Doctor Swindoll for the wonderful message. And on the last night, and he said, if that guy tells me how much he enjoyed my message, I'm going to give him what for. Well, it just so happens before the guy came down, uh, his wife met him and said, Dr. Swindoll said, I want to just let you know uh, that we are tremendous fans of yours. We love your ministry. But my husband has been taking treatments for cancer uh, over the past several months, and uh, the treatments make him very drowsy. And so he, he can't stay awake very long at all. And he said that he went to small, to feeling as if he was only a half mm. inch tall after that. Yeah. Uh, after yeah. that, So there again, you know, whether it's yeah. long service, short service, there may, be some, there may be some reasons why individuals hold both sides of the spectrum. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, there again, I think it's personal preference as to that's one of those, those quaternary fourth level doctrines. Uh, how long should the service go? I mean, I think that's that's part of it. And you know what? Right. You know, it, God didn't make us all the same, and it's a good thing He didn't, because if we all looked the same and, and thought the same and, and spoke the same, this would be a very bo- boring, dull world. We'd all be Calvinistic. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not taking a dig there, but. <laughs> Mike drop. <laughs> That's all I'm gonna say. <laughs> That's funny. Oh, I love them. Don't 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 take it wrong. My Ooh, yeah, sense. but yeah, we're, we're gonna get emails now. <laughs> uh, we're gonna be the we feature. Determ- we were determined to say that. So <laughs> we're gonna be the feature of James White next podcast. <laughs> oh, I love him. I love him anyway. So I mean, he's got a bald head, so it's cool. I'm I'm all with him. I like him. <laughs> so, um, uh, this one's going to get long. Some of the main denominations um, are, and I and I put in here. I said obviously we can't cover them all, um, but I I picked out ones that were like the main main head, you could say, main branches, you could say of of the church. So what, what um, I want to do here in this t- this portion um, is when you call the denomination out, I'm going to give you the the basics of the denomination. Some are going to go longer than others because okay. for some there's more of a complicated history to some than there are others. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like watch, kind of like kind of like following uh, um, uh, 
the B around on on a on a piece of paper and just kind of swirls yeah. around. This is where the nomination came from. <laughs> just just hang tight. There is an endpoint. We'll get you there. Just just hang with us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So the first one, which I wanted to cover because it's 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 kind of steeped in some history, but the Anglican Church, the Anglican. Yeah denomination i find the anglican church very fascinating the anglican church especially in north carolina and virginia uh held a very important a great importance in colonial america especially particularly up in virginia and even today the influence of the anglican church is seen in even some uh non-anglican churches their worship style uh, they are a very liturgical church, and interestingly, they, they're they not quite what you call Protestant and not Catholic. They're kind of an intermediary between the two. Uh, mm. This church broke off from the Roman Catholic Church back around the time of King Henry VIII. Um, my understanding is, and, and you historians out there correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that the Pope at the time told King Henry VIII that he couldn't marry the lady he was wanting to marry. And so he says, well, watch me, and, and I'm going to create my own <laughs> denomination. I don't think it's just specifically just like that because there were mm. other players in with the church as well, even prior to King Henry VIII. It's, it's more of a complicated yeah history than just that but uh but the church is kind of a go-between it is more liturgical but it isn't catholic it's not catholic and so um and so it's it's a very intriguing church in fact there's two main branches of the church there is the Anglican Church, which is, uh, generally speaking, more conservative, and the Episcopalian side, which is, generally speaking, more liberal. Anglicans base their Christian faith on the Bible, traditions of the apostolic church, apostolic secession, uh, historical episcopate, and the writings of the church fathers. Uh, Anglicanism forms one of the branches of Western Christianity, and so, and so it really comes out of the Elizabethan religious settlements. Uh, but really the core, I mean, it actually holds a, a history back to Thomas Cramner, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and even finding a middle way between the two emerging Protestant traditions of Lutheranism and Calvinism, um, you know, mm. providing a third way. So it is technically under the umbrella of Protestantism, but, but they're really very close in many ways to the liturgical features you find in the Catholic Church, but the Mariology is not there. By the way, I use the Book of Common Prayer for my prayer life uh, and my daily devotions. Uh, I think the Book of Common Prayer is fantastic. I actually was able to use the Book of Common Prayer to do a Protestant version of the Last Rites on one occasion, and um, and, oh, and wow. that's available in the Book of Common Prayer. I highly recommend, even if you're not Anglican-inclined, to, to get you a copy of that. There's some wonderful prayers in there. There's some wonderful services that you can do in there. And I love, absolutely love, the, day, the daily lectionary where they give the readings from the Old Testament, reading from the Psalms, reading from the Gospels, and readings from the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really a, a very, a very good book. But that's kind of... Um, that's kind of the really. They also have, as far as church polity go goes, uh, they are under the Episcopalian hierarchical church polity, meaning that it's governed from top down. So um, it has more of that. Yeah, so what there. does a what what does Episcopalian mean? Okay, okay, it's a type of church polity. Okay, when we talk about okay. church polity, okay. we're talking about church government. We're church politics. Yep. 
well, not really politics. It's kind of more of a polity. It's kind of more of an administrative uh, feature. Oh, okay. It's, okay. it's type of the church administration, you might say. With hierarchical okay. or episcopate, what you have is you have a series of bishops. It's kind of like structured kind of similarly to the Catholic Church because you have mm-hmm. a series of bishops. You have the chief organization, and you have a series of bishops, and it's broken down into conferences. And in those conferences, you may have uh, lower-ranking bishops, and then you may mm-hmm. then it goes on down to the local pastor. Oh, okay. uh, now, in the Anglican Church, they still call them priests, although it's not used in the same sense as what you would find in Catholicism and the Orthodox Church. But, uh, okay. but, but it is. Some people have called Anglicanism Catholic light. <laughs> so, not really Catholicism. It's really a Protestant version of it. But a lot of the things uh, in the Catholic Church, the, as far as the liturgical sense. Uh, and the mm-hmm. traditions they're carried over, even though there's not a Mariology, and and it's really more of a Protestant denomination, in large part. Right. And still, some of those things are carried over from the uh, Catholic um, right. tradition. Yeah, and see, to me, some of the some of the liturgical part of it, meaning you know, the the priest or pastor says something, and then you repeat something back you know you're interacting and those things those rhythms that happen tend to be something that really um helps uh you with a baseline of doctrine absolutely i agree and yeah and so it actually ends up being something that i think is is very beautiful when people uh interact that way even though when i was in grade school (laughs) They would say it, and I would just be like, "Man, you know, I'd say whatever, you know." <laughs> that was just because I was a, I was a punk, you know. So, <laughs> punk in a Catholic church, drawing, drawing pictures on the. I'll stop. Uh, anyway, so the Wesleyan Methodist, Wesleyan slash Methodist. Okay, so the West. Denomination. So let me just say the Methodist Church came out of the holy club that John Wesley developed in England and also in America. The word Methodist came from the methodical way in which John Wesley organized things. There was a method that he followed. And so Methodists, the Methodist name came from the methodologies used uh, the precise methodologies used from John Wesley. So okay. the, the Wesleyan movement is very Armenian. The, the key distinction between Wesleyanism and Armenianism is that Arminius said that a person could possibly lose their salvation by simply rejecting the faith, it's by saying, I no longer want to be a Christian anymore. But Arminius said that if that could happen, then a person could not come back to the faith as they would have to re-crucify Christ all over again. Wesley said, well, not so. Uh, you know, that, that if, if a person could do that, then a person could say, once again, Lord, save me, and the Lord would, would, would save that person. Um, he also emphasizes, Wesley does, the holiness tradition, which is talking about living a holy life unto the Lord. He highly emphasizes the whole concept of sanctification. And so many denominations are, are followers of the Wesleyan tradition in that sense. And so um, Wesleyan derived his theological moorings from Arminius, as we mentioned. And Wesley was himself 
an Anglican from England. And he was a revivalist. He was very big into the Great Awakening, along with uh, Jonathan Edwards. It's interesting that Edwards and, right. and uh, Wesley were able to work so closely together because Edwards right. uh, was almost to the point that he deemed Arminianism kind of a form of heresy. He linked anything her- he thought was heretical as being Arminianism in his writing. So it just yeah. took a whole new... <laughs> it was anything you didn't like, you just called it Arminianism. Mm-hmm. But uh, but uh, Wesley was himself an Arminius, uh, Arminian, but with that little twist. Wesleyans are a conservative denomination that flows out of uh, the Wesleyan movement. Uh, the United Methodist Church is about to suffer a split, probably coming up here in a few months. Uh, hearing about that. They're, they're having divisions over the whole issue of same-sex relationships. The United Method, there's the conservative branch has decided that no matter what happens in the conference coming up in June, this is my understanding, they're going to create their own denomination, and, and it's going to be called the Global Methodist Church. I call it the Blue Group because their logo's blue. It's a Global Methodist Church. This is going to be a conservative offshoot of the United Methodist Church, which means that the Red Group, because they have that little red thing in their symbol, is going to still be the United Methodist Church. And most likely, it, it seems that they'll probably become more progressive after the split. Mm. They also have a an Episcopal hierarchical church polity where they have bishops and they have a series of superintendents that oversees. But now the church does have authority to govern itself in, in most matters, but they do have to adhere and abide by the things that's cast... Uh, that's, uh, uh, cast down from the the bishops, they do have a form of pedo baptism, which is infant baptism for people in the church. But they have, interestingly, believers baptism for people who come into the church who uh, who are saved come into the church uh, as yep. an adult, and they'll have either sprinkling or they'll have a believers baptism by immersion. Uh, they have actually opened that up to give that as a choice uh, to the individual. So- so yeah, well, Methodists. That I heard one person say, Methodists. They just form committees to form a committee to have a committee. <laughs> well, no, that's Baptists. <laughs> yeah, that's Baptists. We're the ones who have all the committees, and then there's even a committee on committees. Honest to goodness, there are some churches who have committees on committees. A committee to regulate the committees that's already in function. It gets ridiculous. Oh my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> huh. Well that's interesting because you know, um there's some of that with the Methodist church that um you can see what they're trying to do with the with the baptism. They're trying to say, you know, um our tradition is pedo baptism, but we accept you know, getting getting people wet, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So, um, yeah, interesting. Interesting. So the the next one is uh, Presbyterian. Presbyter- what is Presbyterian? And Presbyterians are, you know, just whereas uh, West, the Methodist Church comes from the teachings of Wesley and Arminius, Presbyterians are Calvinistic in their approach. They're very, they, they uh, abide by the teachings of Calvin, and there have been some, several synods, uh, which are like these um, 
councils that you that times past has come from the Presbyterian Church. There have been splits between the Presbyterian Church uh, over the same issues that's plaguing uh, the United Methodist Church even now. <clears throat> the Presbyterian Church is run by a an elder led. Uh, church polity, or otherwise known as a presbytery. So the interesting mm. thing, and this, this, even though I'm not Presbyterian, I do find this form of church government very compelling. <coughs> Excuse me. What you would do is instead of having a singular pastor, you would have a board of pastors, you know, governing a church. And so, with the denomination, instead of a, instead of having say one bishop you have a collective board of representatives elected by the denomination to serve as the elders of the denomination. And so the same thing you have in the churches. This is actually catching on in some Baptist churches even now. Uh, there's a church in, uh, there's several churches that's actually started adopting this uh, to where they have um, a series of pastors. They'll have the lead pastor, but they'll have other pastors designated for other duties and mm. um and it's really a very compelling thing. It's, it's, it's been very intriguing uh, for some churches. It's actually taken a load off uh, one pastor and actually evenly distributed among many different elders. Hmm. But they also, Presbyterians also adhere to paedo-baptism or infant baptism. Hmm. I see. And then... Uh, the next one is Church of Christ. The Church of Christ stemmed from the restoration movement of Barton W. Stone in Kentucky and the Campbellite division from the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, Thomas and Alexander Campbell, both respectively hmm. from Pennsylvania and West Virginia. Uh, this group refuses to adopt creeds, statements of faith, and contends for the unity of God's people by the restoration of New Testament Christianity. Uh, they they were even refused to call themselves a denomination. I had a good friend of mine. In fact, I, I have another good friend of mine who is a uh, pastor of a church of Christ in, up in Illinois. And they'll be quick to tell you that they don't have any boards governing them. They are essentially a, um, they, they are essentially church governing itself. Uh, autonomy of the local church. They emphasize that, just as do Baptists, that the church governs itself without any outside interference from anything. Uh, and so they're very much congregationalists in their church polity, meaning that the church governs itself. A lot of times when it comes down to church government, it'll come down to a business meeting uh, where you'd have at least 51% of the people voting for this particular thing or that particular thing. Uh, mm. Some some ch Christian churches may have elders. Others may have single pastor-led congregations. Uh, but that just really depends on the church itself. Some accept musical instruments, whereas others don't. In, in Christian churches, that's really kind of up to each individual church. Uh, but one of the key distinctions of the, the Church of Christ is that in the Restoration Movement, they believe that believer's baptism is an essential part of the believer's salvation. Right. Um, now, I've had some friends who've been in the Christian church who've said that they don't necessarily believe that the baptism saves, but they believe that it's a process that a person goes through to bring about salvation, uh, of which baptism is part. You're right. Yeah, and, they, and if I remember right, they take a one one text and make that make that their doctrine, where Peter says, uh, "Must all be baptized 
uh, in the name of the Father and the Son. Well, and it really depends because T.J. Gentry, we've had him on. He's the friend I was talking about up in Illinois. And and he, when I asked him about this, he said, uh, and rightfully so, he said, it just really depends on who you talk about because they really heavily emphasize the autonomy of the local church. You may have different pastors of Christian churches who hold a very different take on what that means. Mm. That's interesting because Eric and I were just talking about that uh, the other day, um, about how a denomination or, um, you know, uh, you could say a framework that a church or, or a group of people make that then form a denomination really helps you have boundaries in knowing what um, what what really is being taught and what really is being held to there. Mm. Good point. So, yeah. So, uh, now we're going to get into the Baptist, the SBC. Well, to understand the SBC, I think you have to understand Baptists in general. And so this, okay. this gets to be a very complicated, twisty, turny road uh, that we take here. So in order to understand Baptists in general and the controversy surrounding Baptists, you have to understand that the Baptist movement came from two distinct branches, the General Baptist branch and the uh, Regular Baptist branch, um, or the Particular Baptist. Sometimes they'll call themselves Particular Baptists. Mm -hmm. So let me start with the General Baptists. General Baptists are Armenians in large part, or they at least open to... Oh, yeah. In fact, the first Baptists, this is going to be a shocker, the first Baptists were most likely the Anabaptists. Now, they didn't have all their theology right, let me just say that. But in large part, they emphasized the freedom of the will. And they were actually the first form of Baptists. Uh, And our general Baptists are often called free will Baptists. And those of us who like to go to the dinners at Baptist churches, we are often called free meal Baptists. <laughs> little Baptist humor for you. Okay. <laughs> anyhow. <laughs> so anyhow, they, they, uh, the, the Anabaptist movement began uh, as an offshoot from Ulrich Zwingli's teachings and as early as 1522. Now, there were some, oh, distingu- really? there's, there's some distinctions between Ulrich Zwingli and the Anabaptists. Ulrich Zwingli believed that paedo-baptism was still an acceptable form of baptism, whereas Anabaptists in general said, no way, Jose, only believers' baptism, that's the only thing we're going to accept. So they emphasized the freedom of the will. The main theses that Ulrich Zwingli put forth was, one, the church is born of the word of God and Christ alone is its head. Two, that its laws are binding only insofar as they agree with the scripture. Three, that Christ alone is man's righteousness. Four, that the Holy Scripture does not teach Christ's corporal presence in the bread and wine at the Lord's Supper. Five, that the that uh, the Mass is a gross affront to the sacrifice and death of Christ, so he was not in favor of the Mass. Six, that there is no biblical foundation for the mediation or intercession of the dead, for purgatory, for images and pictures. And seven, that marriage is lawful to all, meaning that people serving in uh, in ministry could most certainly marry. And so um, the Swiss, Zurich Zwingli, laid it out there. And so Zwingli and Baptist departed on the view of paedo-baptism. So um, 
This is also would be later identified with the English separatist movement, which was influential in colonial America. Now, that's one side of the story. You also have another side of the story called the regular Baptists or particular Baptists. General Baptists are called general Baptists because they believe in the general election that Christ died so that the world could be saved. Regular or particular Baptists are called so because they believe in a particular atonement, meaning that Christ only died for the, for the elect. So, regular Baptists are Calvinistic Baptists. They were opposed to the emotionalism and evangelistic invitations as associated with the Great Awakening. They were the offshoot of the 17th century Puritans, which itself was an offshoot of Congregationalists. And uh, they also are called, uh, also, regular Baptists emphasized, now here's kind of the black eye for general Baptists. Regular Baptists emphasized education, a paid staff, and forbade women from preaching. Now, I'm talking more about the educational part and paid staff, whereas separate Baptists did not place much value on education, eschewed a salaried staff, and did permit women to preach. That's kind of what led to some of the problems that eventually came into uh, some of the, uh, the the General Baptists later on down the line. Interestingly, they came together and to sign the Philadelphia Confession of Faith, and the barriers that they had eventually come to the point that they were able to put those aside and worship together. And so the two factions came together and signed the Philadelphia Confession of the Faith. Now, this would lead to the formation of what was called the Triennial Convention, Short name, the long name was the General Missionary Convention of the Baptist Denomination in the United States for Foreign Missions. What a name. This was developed on May 8th of 1814, consisting of both general and particular Baptists, with an emphasis on foreign missions, home missions, and education. The first president was Richard Furman of South Carolina, for whom Furman University was named. And it was called the Triennial Convention because the convention met every three years. Luther Rice, uh, there's a university name for him down in Georgia, in, near Atlanta. Uh, Luther Rice was a major player in the denomination. He also uh, emphasized missions. Now, here again is where the black eye comes. May 8, 1845, the Southern Baptist Convention split from the Triennial Convention over the whole issue of abolition or slavery. Oh. And so, See. unfortunately, the Southern Baptists, uh, they took the side of the plantation owners, and, um, and that's what happened. For the, that issue, Southern Baptists have uh, definitively apologized for the formation of the, of the convention. And even some people have even led uh, to, to consider whether or not the name needs to be changed. That, has, mm. that hasn't gone over very well. For most people, but still, it's been emphasized. So the question is, what what unites Convention Baptists? Well, one, the belief that churches work better together. Two, the priesthood of the believer that Christ is our priest, and we don't need someone to go between us and Christ. The separation of church and state is actually a big thing in Baptist life. Uh, that there is a distinction between the church and the state. The authority of Scripture and number five, believers' baptism. These five things are what unites conventions, ba convention Baptists. Now there are other versions. There's 150 different kinds of Baptists out there. There's independent fundamentalist Baptists or IFB and IFBF. They are more hardcore on certain interpretations and even fourth level doctrines. A lot of them are KJV only's. Um, 
There's also primitive Baptists, they're hardcore Calvinists, free will Baptists. There's a whole denomination of free will Baptists that are that are very much emphasized free will. And then there's the National Baptist Convention, which is the largest African American Baptist denomination uh, in the world right now. And so that kind of is the landscape for Baptists. Hmm. So since we got the Baptist <laughs> line figured out, let's <laughs> let's dump, jump into Pentecostal. Okay, so Pentecostal, the Pentecostal movement emerged in 1901 with the evangelistic movements of the Holy Spirit. There are 300 distinct denominations and eight major denominations. Uh, so what unites Pentecostals? Well, two things. A conversion to Christ followed by a spirit baptism which may accompany speaking in tongues as a manifestation of that spiritual baptism. And then also, secondly, the manifestation of spiritual gifts in the individual's lives. So there's eight major, excuse me, eight major Pentecostal denominations. The first one is the Church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee. This is a small restoration movement which emerged from western North Carolina in 1886. It identifies with Wesleyan holiness uh, teachings. Ambrose Jessup Tomlinson was an influential leader, uh, but unfortunately he later distanced himself, uh, distanced some church members due to his overly authoritarian style. The Church of God Cleveland began growing under new leadership. They accept foot washings and accept uh, even three baptisms, the first one being conversion, the second one being sanctification, and the third one being the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They have four uh, distinct uh, colleges, Lee College in Cleveland, Tennessee, the Church of God School of Theology, West Coast Bible College in Fresno, California, and Northwest Bible College in Minot, North Dakota, or Minot. I don't know if it's Minot or Minot. Yes, it's Minot. Minot. Okay, well, I had it all yeah. wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Secondly, there's the Church of God Anderson, Indiana. This was founded in 1881 by Daniel Warner. They forsook denominational creeds and hierarchies and are part of the holiness uh, movement. They accept the Wesleyan tradition. They also accept women in ministry. They believe in three ordinances, the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, baptism, and foot washing. They believe in no creed but the Bible. They're also... Uh, in uh, talk about Christian perfectionism, about getting to the point where you don't desire to uh, choose sinful things. And they're also pacifists and anti-racists. They're, they're very much against racism. And then they also believe in physical healing as well. The third uh, denomination is the International Pentecostal Holiness Church, headquartered in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Uh, this they came out of the holiness revivals of the late, late 19th century. They comprised several Pentecostal holiness denominations. Uh, following the, they also follow the Methodist structure, and they are the, also the ones that run and operate Oral Roberts University. And then fourthly, you have the Church of God in Christ. This is primarily an African-American denomination. It emerged from the holiness movement of the 1890s. Uh, this denomination has more roots with actually holiness Baptists than necessarily Methodists. Uh, they were formed by Charles Price Jones and Charles Mason. They accepted a, an Episcopal version of church polity and is, from what I understand, the largest African-American denomination in the world, which I found fascinating. Hmm. 
And then we have the Assemblies of God, uh, which uh, originate to 1914 camp meetings in Hot Springs, Arkansas. They combine congregational and Presbyterian polity, uh, governed by a general council with 57 districts. Now, this information may be older, maybe more now. They have a strong missionary program. I didn't know this, but they also created the National Religious Broadcasters. I did not know that. The NRB TV? Yeah, the NRB. Mm-hmm. I, I did not know that, wow. but they, they actually developed that. They also developed really? the Pentecostal Fellowship of North America and World Pentecostal Conference. This is, this is old information they had at the time of the information that I had. 1,500 missionaries abroad. I'm sure it's more than that by now. Four schools. This may be increased now as well. Central Bible College, Evangel College, uh, Berean College, and the Assemblies of God Theological Seminary. Where is the Assemblies of God Theological Seminary located? I don't know. I, I, I attend Global University. so A Global University? Where, where is mm-hmm. that located? That's uh, Springfield, Missouri. Springfield, Missouri. So there mm-hmm. may be many more universities that they've developed since then. Right, right. And this is the, also yeah. the largest Pentecostal denomination in the world, is the Assemblies yeah. of God. Is the Assemblies of God, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it, I mean, within that, there's there's some there's some kind of broadness, too, you know, as far as... Um, things that they hold to so that's good so the last one here we'll cover yeah well, um, uh, we got three is, more to go hold on just a second <laughs> oh, 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 okay. three more pentecostal versions i'll go through them real quickly oh. there's a pentecostal assemblies of the world that left the ag church over a bitter dispute in 1913 they accepted a oneness theology the assemblies of mm-hmm. god created the statement of fundamental truths in 1916 in opposition to this new movement and they right. now only accept baptisms in the name of jesus only they're they're kind of a modalist denomination now they've kind of actually tinkered into a little bit of heresy there from what right. the way it sounds and um right. phillips craig and dean is my understanding part of this denomination i think they even go now by the oneness pentecostals now um the United Pentecostal Church is another branch of, uh, of Oneness Pentecostals, primarily Caucasians. Um, they, um, they're much like the Pentecostal Assemblies of the World, except they are uh, primarily, the, the PAW, Pentecostal Assemblies of the World, is primarily African American, whereas the UPC is primarily Caucasian. Then you also finally have the International Church of the Four Square Gospel, stemming from the ministry of Amy Simple McPherson, uh, she was a gifted, albeit controversial, figure uh, originating in Ingles, Ingersoll, Ontario, Canada. She constructed the Angelus, Angelus Temple, which housed 5,300 people in a domed church. Uh, she uh, was affiliated with the AG Church, but she viewed the four faces of Ezekiel 1 as the four types of the ministry of the church, calling it the four-square four, four gospel, Christ the Savior, Christ the Healer, Christ the Baptizer, and Christ the coming King. And so she it really very much resembles the AG Church, but there's a lot of distinctions there between it and the AG Church. Mm-hmm. Right. And I was just going to say, most of the Pentecostal movement formed out of the Azusa Street Revival. Yes. That come out of that in, what was that, uh, 19, 1906? 1906. I actually meant to mention that. Um, 
But yep. I'm glad you mentioned that. I'm glad you pointed that out. And that yeah, was in California, um, right? Yeah. Um, let's see. Seymour and... Um, oh, I cannot remember the other fella's name uh, that, that taught through that. Um, so, it, yeah, the Pentecostal movement really started out of that out of that revival and and there was not just the revival at azusa street but there was revival uh, basically across all all of america and uh, overseas um yeah and it's like this yeah exactly and it's like this one this one um book i had said that uh it didn't mention the azusa street but you're right it actually originated there uh, but apparently there was a big camp meeting held in 1914. I think that's when the AG Church was officially formulated. I think that's what mm-hmm. he was trying to say, yep. officially formulated yep. in Hot Springs, Arkansas. But you're right. The the whole movement began in, in um, at the Azusa Street Revival. But let me just say that there were there were previous movements even prior to that right. because yep. of the, what, two or three, I think there may have been as many as three Great Awakenings that took yeah. place, and the third may be associated with, um, with that movement in early. 90s. Yeah, and they said they said it's clearly a move of God because there were there were sit, there were towns that had, um, you know, the bars were closing down because they didn't have anybody, you know, in in them, um, and there were more people attending these revival meetings um and and uh the whole blocks of of questionable areas of town were being shut down because of it and and uh it's interesting when you start looking at how the holy spirit was moving through at that time and creating some of the issues and some of the things that it was doing amen it's interesting that some of the things that happened there were very comparable to some of the things that happened in the first great awakening which I found mm-hmm. fascinating. Yeah, yeah. People just <laughs> just straight up turning one, you know, a, a complete different direction. Yeah, completely. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and you know, here's the other thing: is the fruit remained. Yeah. So it wasn't just something that just kind of it was it was of man, you know. It that, this definitely was of God because um, the fruit remained within the hearts of the people. So, um, so the next one, the last one I wanted to cover was the the Catholic. I know in the Apostles' Creed it said the Catholic Church, and you and you define that as the overall universal church, universal church, yeah. the umbrella of church. When we talk about church, it's the big C church. And there's a distinction there needs to be made between the communion of saints and the Holy mm-hmm. Catholic Church. In many ways. The Catholic Church is talking about the universal body of Christ, and that communion is not only talking about the communion of saints, not only talking about the, the, the saints that are in communion on earth, but also the saints that are in communion still in heaven. Uh, so there's mm-hmm. there's this link between the body of Christ Connection. on earth and the body of Christ in heaven. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah, so, talking about the Catholic Church, you know, it traces its origins. Well, really, all the churches trace. If we if we go back far enough, we we trace our origins to the earliest church. Uh, but particularly, the Catholic Church does, and it really became the Catholic Church whenever there when it, 
from the Great Schism of July 16th of 1054, there was a big division that happened over iconography and a few other theological issues. And so the Western Church became the Roman Catholic Church after the Holy Roman Empire, and whereas mm-hmm. the Eastern Church became the Orthodox Church. There was the Greek Orthodox Church and the Russian Orthodox Church, but by and large the Orthodox Church came out of the East, the Catholic Church came out of the West. Mm-hmm. So, when you were talking about the separation of church and state, what your what what is actually what is actually stated there is meaning the 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 state has no influence on what the church says or does or how it runs uh, runs its um, finances. Correct. Exactly, and and the um, his name won't come to me. The guy who why won't it come to me? The uh, guy who formed the first church, Baptist Church in the United States, he heavily emphasized, heavily emphasized that. Roger, what in the world is his name? Um, but he heavily emphasized. Um, it's on the tip of my tongue. I'm going to, have to pull this up. But that was my that was my 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 thinking in this was to make sure we clarified that that's what that's meant is when we talk about church and state it doesn't mean that the church can't influence what the state is doing or influence within what's going on around in in the state itself. Well, now it just but depends because now now some uh, Roger Williams Roger Williams is his name. I got the Roger part right, but but he made a clear distinction because we have to understand that the church in colonial America was with the Anglican Church, the Church of England, was dictating everything people could do. And so there was a distinction saying that there were two bodies and and that the church could not dictate government either because at the at the time you know under colonial America the Church of England in mm-hmm. in England itself was dictating what everybody how everybody could worship at that time the Anglican Church was overseeing everything mm-hmm. and so there was a distinction made on both sides that I there see. needed to be an entity for the state. And there needed to be an entity for the church. And so that's where we as evangelicals need to be careful because we don't want to go back to a situation where we have like a Church of England overseeing everything that we do. Because right. we need to have that we need to have that freedom of religion to worship as the Lord leads us to. And so when you have a society like we have then people must have the ability to worship or not worship in right. in their own in their own format. So we have to go back and remember the situations and circumstances that they were facing in colonial America. And uh, Roger Williams, that's the guy. He's the one who the who formed the First Baptist Church mm. in in the United States. Yeah, that's interesting. Knowing that um, they clearly didn't want to go back to what they just came from. You know, from England, they wanted to make sure they didn't cross those lines again. So interesting. Yeah, because I mean, there again, you know, they had a church entity, they had a an, an organization, they had a government telling them how they could worship, what they could do, what they couldn't do, and they were wanting mm-hmm. freedom. Mm-hmm. So we're pressing for time here. What? <laughs> yeah, what? I uh, think we have. <laughs> 
<laughs> what what um what questions you want to cover? What next questions you want to cover? Well, the historical origins. We were going to talk about that, and I think we've already covered that fairly well. Um, yep. yep. And so you want to go ahead and cover number four? I think the rest of the questions we can hit fairly quickly. Yeah. And so what my idea here is to show and explain uh, how close they are and how how different they are. So um, do these fall under the umbrella of church, church orthodoxy, the big C church? I think everything that we've covered falls under the the umbrella of church orthodoxy with perhaps the exception of that oneness group that we mm-hmm. mentioned where they had adopted a form of modalism. But even then, does that still fall under the death, deity, resurrection of Jesus? You know, I don't know. You could argue that back and forth. But I still would say that there there are some fundamental problems with that denomination if if you're or denominations sure. if you're going to reject the idea of the Trinity as it's classically mm-hmm. understood. I mean that right. doesn't mean that in two thousand years we couldn't have got some things wrong, but if you but if you're gonna hold that you better have some doggone good proof to the otherwise to yeah. to show, to prove your case. And I don't think they do. Yeah. I guess when you look at it, so correct me if I'm wrong here, but um, when you when you look at that, um, if a if a new believer that's never that's never known anything about Christ or 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 God or anything, and a new believer comes into a church and is convicted by the Holy Spirit and then uh, um, confesses faith in Christ and and starts walking a walk and starts reading the scriptures, but they have no idea what the Trinity is about and no idea um, what some of these other um, maybe maybe core doctrines are, um, which you wouldn't expect them to. That might fall into that, but like you said, as time has gone on, you would think that we would have these things polished up a little bit. Oh, sure, yeah. At least the core fundamental doctrines. Now, again, does that mean that we're going to have everything theologically under wrap, you know, several years afterwards? Probably not. And in fact, I Mm -hmm. spoke to a person, you know, not not long ago, actually this week, we were talking about the differences in denomination, and, and I told her, I said, I really believe that uh, we're all going to find we were wrong about something when we get to heaven. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I, mm-hmm. I do believe that, because God is far above and beyond what we could ever ever, ever, ever fully comprehend. But, uh, yeah, the core fundamentals, we need to have that down pat. Yeah. So what are the differences, if any, in doctrine of salvation between these? Well, I think the biggest difference is that it's not necessarily how one comes to faith. I think the biggest difference is how it how one is um, is one kept in that salvation afterwards. Now, you may have mm-hmm. distinctions in how one views um, the process by which a person comes to faith with the Calvinist version and the Armenian version and the Molinist version, Thomas, so on and so forth. But uh, I think, by and large, all agree that God moves and a person uh, enters that faith, whether it's completely a work of God or whether a person has the ability to respond. There's still that agreement that God moved first. Uh, but again, the, the whole issue is how is is one kept in salvation, and if so, how? That's where mm-hmm. the distinctions appear to uh, emerge, mm-hmm. or the differences. 
Uh, we already kind of covered a little bit of this. What, um, what are the differences in church polity? So just to lay this out, you have the Episcopal hierarchical version. This is where you have uh, bishops and overseers uh, governing the church and, and handing down uh, uh, rules and regulations to lower branches of the church. So you may have head bishops and then you may have superintendents underneath them and then you may from there you may have the local pastors. Uh, you know in the Catholic Church you have the Pope, you have cardinals and then bishops and then you know going on down to the local yep. priests. Uh, so whether it's the Catholic version or whether it's the Anglican or Methodist, there's still this hierarchy that's set in place where it's governed from the denomination down to the local church. Elder-led is where you have a body of elected individuals that are elected by the church, but they, they have more authority to govern and, and, and basically take over and do things for the church. And then mm. you know they report back to the church. In some ways, this is kind of like what a republic is, that the people elect representatives, and then those elected leaders govern okay. the nation. Okay. So it's kind of similar to that. Okay. It's the same type of concept. And then you have the congregational version uh, where you have the congregation making the rules and regulations kind of going from, whereas the um, Episcopalian hierarchical version is from top up, here you have from bottom up the congregation, mm. you know, elects and, and votes and does certain things. Now, if everybody, now see, this only works in a church where people are authentically saved <laughs> and are growing in the faith. Yeah. But there if you, you have yeah. a congregation where people were one, you have individuals yeah. who are not necessarily saved, or two, people who aren't necessarily mature, then you can have a bunch of problems. But then again, with the hierarchical version, you can have problems if the leadership becomes uh, tainted in their theological system, you know, so or, or becomes tyrannical. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, which is best? Well, honestly, the best version is Christ governing it. <laughs> yeah. yeah no they kidding. all have their strengths and weaknesses. Yeah. So, what, what are the differences, uh, different doctrinal modes of baptism? So, you have what's called paedo-baptism, it's infant baptism. And this is the understanding is that when a family comes to the church... The church is baptizing the child, not believing that they're already saved, but believing that the church working together under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that the, the Holy Spirit will eventually lead that person to, that child to faith. So it's kind of believer's baptism in reverse. Now, the goal is that that child would eventually come to faith. Does it always happen? No, it doesn't. So that's where some of the controversy comes in. Sprinkling is a mode that was actually adopted early on in the church for individuals who could not be immersed. Uh, immersion was the practice of the early church. That was the practice of the earliest church. But as the church mm. grew and, and came into situations where people couldn't be immersed, sprinkling was adopted, and uh, for some denominations that was the preferred mode. Believer's baptism is where a person, after they receive Christ, they are baptized under the water fully. That's when we say, it, say it's called immersion, and it's immersion, done yeah. after they, they come to faith. That's why it's called believer's baptism. The mm. Church of the Brethren practiced triple baptisms, and they'll instead of baptizing going backwards, they'll baptize, go, baptize going forwards, one time in the name of the Father, 
another in the name of the Son, and the, and the third time in the name of the Holy Spirit. And then you have the oneness baptism where they believe that you can only be baptized in the name of Jesus alone. Yeah. Yeah, and it, some of that some of that sounds to me like that that then becomes um, legalistic. Yeah, it can be. Yeah, it can be. Yeah. Yep. So, uh, number eight here: worship in a Pentecostal church is clearly different than in an Ag- Anglican church. Is that a dividing issue? Only if you make it. Only you if go. you make it. Um, you know, there's a lot of churches that the the, the issue of worship style. I, I think there's a lot of Baptist churches that are having these same problems. Um, mm-hmm. In our area, there's a lot of churches that are really pushing for contemporary services where the churches aren't simply ready for it. Um, mm-hmm. And so, I think that the easiest solution would be either one to accept the fact that the people aren't accepting that style of worship, two. Um, to have a blended style of worship, and that's been successful in many churches, or three, upstart new churches. You know, if if you're if you're that dead mm. set on having contemporary music, or well, it doesn't have to be contemporary music; it can be any style of worship. If you're that dead set on having it, and the church where you're located isn't doing it, well, then either find yourself a church that's doing it, or start your own church if you need to be. Um, but I think we have in many ways, especially in low, in Baptist churches, what I've noticed, we've, we've put more emphasis on the style of worship than on worship itself, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where the problem has become. I don't care if you're singing classical, classical hymns or if you're rocking down on, on third day or something like that. If, if, you, if the Spirit Amen. of God is there, that's what matters more than the style of music, right? right. quite honestly. Right. Yeah. So, what are the similarities that we share in amongst all these? So, going back to the last the last question, you know that that whole issue was a quaternary quaternary circle, the last outermost mm-hmm. circle. The similarities we share are found in the primary doctrines, that blue circle, the one in the innermost circle. That's what unites us as a people. And so, yes, we may have distinctions. We may have differences on style of worship and on Bible translations and things of this nature. But at the end of the day, the thing that's most important is whether or not we, we have accepted and received Christ as our Savior and we've entered into that, that union with Him. Yeah. Yeah, so we're not that far away. No, no absolutely. So... The last one here. How can we use this information to minister to the people around us then? I think by letting people know that despite our differences, despite the hurts that we have in church, and believe you me, there's a lot of hurt out there. As we talk about Kevin Max, I'm wondering if some of that didn't come from church hurt. And... um, I, I, th- I have a feeling that a lot of it did, and quite honestly, we're, we're producing individuals in our churches with this mindset, not because of the pressures of society, but because we can't get our act straight. We can't seem mm-hmm. to get along as children of God. But if we would understand that the essential things, if we would make the main things the main things, then we would see that we have a whole lot more in common than we do that divides mm-hmm. us. 
There you go. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think the biggest thing for me is to show this, um, to show these denominations as even though we we tend to prefer one over the other, that doesn't mean that we can't, uh, you know, share some commonality with, uh, with the core beliefs and, and understand that um, we're going to all, we're, we're all made differently you know, than, yeah. than the other person and to be able to have that time frame. And, 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 I, and I would say, through those things. yeah, and I would want to add one more thing. There's a lot of people out there who have the impression that, you, that you're going to go in and you're going to change your church and, and you're going to make them like you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that's the problem. We don't want people, I don't want people to become miniature Brian Chilton's. My goal should be to make people like Jesus. Wanting people to become like ourselves is legalism. True, genuine Christianity is wanting people to become like Christ. So if you're in a church and maybe you can't get down with the worship style, maybe you can't, maybe you're having problems with some of those issues that's hindering you from worship, then don't be afraid to go to a different church or maybe a different denomination if you need to, where you feel the Spirit, where you're being taught, you're being edified, and you're being brought closer to the Lord. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's that unity that we all feel that then uh, builds us up, that then we can share that with others. I think that's important. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, this has been a good one. We here at Bellator Christie went really long. Yeah, we did. <laughs> I think we went so, doubled our we normal podcast almost. <laughs> we want to thank you for spending that time together with us, and we value that time. Our prayer is that this podcast helps stretch your mind and is a place to strengthen your faith as we strive to create an atmosphere of discussion and is a reliable source of information. Join us next time on the Bellator Christie Podcast, and until next time, Brian and I say, Soldier on, friends. And hey, Curtis, before we close out, you know what? We almost had a two-hour <laughs> worship service, did we? My goodness. Yeah. been listening to the Bellator Christie podcast brought to you by bellatorchristie.com. The opinions of our guests represent their own and may not reflect those of Bellator Christie Ministries or its affiliates. The Bellator Christie podcast and bellatorchristie.com are protected under Creative Commons copyright, all rights reserved. The opening theme is the song Crucified, written by John and Michaela Limanis, performed by Crosby Lane and produced by Mansion Entertainment. Be sure to visit our YouTube page at www.youtube.com forward slash Bellator Christie. Also, please consider leaving a positive review on the apps where this podcast is found. We thank you for joining us today and hope to see you back the next time that we step into the arena of ideas. Have you ever wondered about the Christian faith, but have become bogged down by difficult terminology? Are you a Christian and faced doubts and you didn't know where to turn? Maybe your faith has been challenged and you don't know how to respond. Or perhaps you desire to learn more about how to winsomely defend your faith, but you do not have the time nor the finances to enroll in seminary. If any of these situations describes you, then consider purchasing a copy of the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics. This book confronts the challenges facing the Christian faith, but does so in a way that is accessible to everyone.
The Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics is available in softcover, hardcover, on the Kindle, and Nook. Consider purchasing a copy of the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics from your favorite bookstore today. Do you have a question about the Bible, theology, or apologetics that you've always wanted to ask but never felt comfortable asking? If so, we want to encourage you to head over to bellatorchristi.com and submit your question on the Submit a Question link. Your question will be reviewed and may be featured on a future article or podcast. Remember, the only dumb question is the one unasked. So go over to bellatorchristi.com now and submit your question.